What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Josh Marshall podcast. We are on our second uh, episode of 2023. Uh, since we spoke to you last, we finally have a speaker of the house, Kevin McCarthy. And uh, I think it, I think it's worth stepping back and saying that, at least in my mind, this was a an evolving story where conventional wisdom and non-conventional wisdom really didn't have a clear sense of what was going to happen. It was not a foreordained conclusion that Kevin McCarthy was going to be the speaker. I would I would say that there was uh, a significant period of time when people were assuming that it was a losing battle for him. At least in my mind, there was, I don't know what is, I guess this thing went on for uh Four days. It was a total of four days. Four days into the into the next morning of a fifth day, um, and uh, at least in my sense of how this evolved, there was the first two or three days. There was a lot of thinking of you know those twenty are not moving. Period. And at some point. McCarthy's backers are going to say, you know, love you, Kevin, but it's not happening. We need another plan. And and when is that going to, when is that, um, you know, when is that loosening of support going to happen? And is it going to come when, uh, you know, a Steve Scalise starts to you know, get some attention or something like that. And, you know, if you're watching the TV coverage, there were there were constant invocations of this, uh, you know, kind of almost almost uh, cliche action where Kevin McCarthy's top lieutenants come to him and just say, it's not happening. We got to, it sucks. It's not fair. We have to move on. But something different happened. And at least in my sense, the kind of the turning point, not in any one thing, but what became clear is like the 20 aren't moving, but the 200 aren't moving either. And I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't think Kevin McCarthy is like a wildly liked guy uh, up there on Capitol Hill. He doesn't have, it's not like he has like a lot of, you know, um, a lot of chits from a lot of people. I think it's probably fair to say that a lot of people 
don't have, um, I mean, it's hard to have a lot of respect for Kevin McCarthy, given the multiple transformations he has made over the last decade or so, and um, how much he has uh, abnegated himself vis-a-vis Trump, vis-a-vis the Freedom Caucus, etc. But what I think he was able to do, and credit to McCarthy for managing to, uh, to do this, was after a few days to basically say, look, I'm not dropping out. I'm not dropping out. Like, if, if, if Steve Scalise wants to come to the floor and say, it's over, it's me, like, okay, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But you're not gonna you're not gonna see a breaking news thing where Kevin McCarthy says, Okay, I guess it didn't pan out for me. I'm not backing out. And so it's those 20 people or it's me. And it's one or the other. If I go down, it means they won. And do you wanna live in a house where they run things? And for McCarthy's supporters, I think that was a pretty convincing argument. Now the um you know and and so what we saw was his support did not start fraying you had a couple people like ken buck who's ideologically basically freedom caucus saying well voting for kevin this time but next time who knows you know there were some sort of some feints in that direction but as far as i know ken buck never voted against kevin mccarthy he kept threatening, but he went low energy. He wouldn't do it. So it solidified. Uh, McCarthy was able to basically solidify his support behind himself on the argument of, do you want to work for them? Do you want to work for Andy Biggs? Do you want to work for Matt Geitz? And um, for a lot of the members of that caucus, the answer was no. No, I really don't. Those dudes suck. And and uh, so, in my mind at least, maybe halfway through that four or five day drama, something kind of shifted. And since McCarthy was not going to back out, um, you kind of start saying, you know, eventually he's going to get this. Don't know how. And I'll say that even... even um, even before that breakthrough where they had that, you know, that deal that basically got almost everybody across and they were down to like six or seven, uh, six or seven members. Even then, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not saying the kind of like, oh, I saw what was coming. I didn't. It was, it was just really hard to know where that was, um, where that was going to come together. Uh, and, and, you know, the other side of this is, you know, do you want to work for Andy Biggs? Do you want to work for Matt Geitz? Well, you are working for Andy Biggs and Matt Geitz. You're just working under the, uh, you know, the subcontractor, Kevin McCarthy. And that's kind of where we are. And um, so now we're in this new reality where, you know, you've got uh, Republicans have the House. They're uh, kicking off all their all their new investigations. Um, they are, you know, they're starting to pass their, you know, show bills. For lack of a better word, they just, uh, you know, uh, overturned the hiring of the 87,000 new IRS agents, which they didn't overturn it. 
because it's not law, so nothing has hap- happened. They just passed a they just passed a bill in the House, and there's also not eighty seven thousand IRS agents. So the whole thing is nonsense. And um, what I hope Democrats are able to communicate to people to make a big deal out of is starting in 2010, or actually starting in 2011, Republicans very deliberately with a very specific intent started starving the IRS for funds. And that has two effects, both of which Republicans like. One of which is there's not a lot of resources to go after super wealthy tax cheats. And I mean people who are have incomes of multiple millions or multiple tens of millions of dollars a year, sometimes much higher. I'm not talking about the person who's like, you know, has a has has a nice mid six figure income, the, the you know, the local hotshot lawyer, the big people. They don't have resources to make sure those people aren't cheating. The other thing though is that's why when you have a question with the IRS and you call up, you get a reply in two months. So on the one hand, it protects their donors who are cheating on their taxes. It also sows demoralization and discontent and anger in the federal government because it it makes it impossible to work for the IRS. They don't have they don't have support personnel. I mean, imagine you know you talk about when you when you um, call up whatever company you're working for and you've got a dispute or you've got a question. You need phone support. Blah 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 blah. Imagine a company that everyone in the country has to work with about very consequential stuff. You need a lot of staff if you're not just referring everybody to the fact. Right. So, uh, so that's where we are. Um, that is the uh, new reality, um, and that doesn't even get into the fact that we're looking at, you know, sometime over the course of this calendar year, probably late summer, early fall, we're going to get to a debt limit fight, which is going to be really, really bad, and um, you know. This should have been resolved under Democratic control. Uh, the the basic answer is is that Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin didn't want to do it. There's uh, some other reasons that have to do with you know we had a had a uh, a briefing uh, a couple months ago uh, with a couple people. One of them is Adam Jenelson, who's who's you know the kind of the the filibuster reform guy, but a guy who was a high level staffer for Harry Reid when Reid ran the Senate. And he said something very interesting, very distressing, but very interesting. That one of the reasons these things don't happen is that, you know, on the Senate side, you've got this, there's a lot of kind of game theory explanations of how this stuff works. But basically, you say, hey, we got to resolve this 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 brewing crisis that's going to happen, uh, you know, a year from now. And everybody basically says, well, a year from now is a long time. Like, you, you maybe you do it. I don't want to do it. Like, like, what if what if it goes badly? What if whatever? You know, not addressing problems in advance. But here's where we are, and I think it's also important, you know, just just because one group of people didn't um, confiscate all the guns from the terrorists doesn't mean it's not the terrorists' fault when they launched their terrorist attack. 
right? Let's let's get clear who's who's responsible and who is not. But anyway, that is that is what we're looking for going into 2023. Now, uh, let me remind you before we get any further that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Uh, cold Brew, the king of iced coffee, and Grady's the king of cold brew. Brewed and bottled in New York City, Grady's All Natural Cold Brew hit the coffee scene in 2011 and has been delivering the best artisanal cold brew ever since. Grady's bottles a New Orleans-style concentrate for over 20 hours and uses a blend of 100% Arabica beans, imported French chicory, and signature spices brewed to bring you that authentic New Orleans experience without the airline ticket. For the DIY crowd, our bean bags contain the same blend of ground coffee beans, chicory, and spices we brew at our factory and makes up to 12 servings per pouch. Made in-house using all-natural, vegan, non-GMO, kosher, gluten-free ingredients covered all the covered all the uh, kind of like identity and 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 political preferences there. Grady's Velvety Smooth Coffee can be enjoyed hot, ice, spiked with cocktail, ready to give it a swirl. Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, uh, co-host Kate Riga, what is... What's up? You're 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 down there as part of our uh, DC bureau. Um, have you been Have you been up to the hill yet during during this drama? Um, I went recently, but I guess not uh, not post the speakership fight. But yeah, so last time we recorded was on a weird Friday uh, to accommodate my holiday travel schedule, and so we were talking kind of in the midst of the vote after vote after vote after vote time when it became clear that the strategy was just the war of attrition. Um, And then we, you know, we stopped recording, went back to our our normal business. The House adjourned until 10 p.m. Our listeners will probably remember because House Republicans kind of realized that uh, the endless streams of votes weren't weren't going to get it done. So they wanted to take a few hours and try to move the holdouts. And then Kevin McCarthy came back, uh, you know, told reporters on his way in, I've got the votes, you know, this is it, we're going to do it. I think, I believe this was the 14th vote at this point, comes into the chamber. Uh, We're tracking all the votes. And by this point, you kind of know the universe of people that's going to kind of make or break it. All comes down to Matt Gates. He misses the initial reading of his name. He was out of the chamber and then came into the chamber shortly after, which made me think, okay, he's setting himself up for his own, his John McCain moment, right? It's all going to come down to him. He's going to make sure that he's one of the last people to go. So everybody's watching. Uh, He comes in and then he votes present, which in some scenarios is helpful to McCarthy, right? Because a present vote lowers the threshold he needs. But in this case, it left McCarthy a vote short. And then it was unlike anything I've ever seen in politics because we are just at a point, especially because Nancy Pelosi has been in charge for so long, where you're just not that used to seeing genuine confusion and a lack of a certain outcome play out before your eyes, you know, with competent leadership, this is the stuff that happens behind closed doors. You do the the bloodying up of the person or the, you know, sticks and carrots to try to get them on your side. And you have that stuff locked down. And McCarthy thought he had that locked down. And then he went to the floor and the 14th vote failed too, after he just told everyone that that, that was it. He was going to become elected speaker. Now, let me ask you something, because 
as I understand this, when when the Republican members saw Gates vote present, at first everybody was like, "Awesome, okay, we got mm-hmm. it," without mm-hmm. realizing quite, you know, because the I mean, I, it's not rocket science, right? You don't have to be like um, in calculus where you're computing limits and stuff like that. But it but it is a little intricate, right? It's a bit of a game of Jenga or whatever with how uh, different, you know how knows and presence and all this kind of stuff works together. So for a second now did 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 Gates know what he was doing? I guess so. I but the whole thing was a little a little it confusing was weird. to me. Exactly. Yeah, like you say it was confusing because the threshold of how many votes he needed kept changing. So it was just kind of hard to keep tabs on it. And then it sinks in and McCarthy charges up the aisle. He goes to talk to Gates and it's just it was a stunning moment. I mean, brought to us by an, an unrestrained C-SPAN, which was so lucky that we got to see this. But he is talking to Gates. He gets visibly frustrated in their conversation and kind of like throws his hands up and starts walking back. And you can hear him at one point, the mics pick up him saying, well, we'll just do it again then. But while the cameras are panning away to follow his kind of walk of shame back to his seat, we have... Mike Rogers of Alabama come flying in from the top of the scene and he has to be physically restrained as he lunges at Gates. And I'm sure our listeners by this point have seen some of the photos of that moment, which are truly like, you know, Renaissance works of art. I mean, it's just so tense and so dramatic and, you know, catches the moment of the movement and Gates kind of like shaking his finger in response. I mean, it was one of the most cinematic, dramatic scenes I've ever seen play out in the political sphere. And for those of you who haven't seen it, either the photographs or the video, it's not just restrained in the sense of like someone kind of, you know, holds him back a little in the sort of the fracas in holding him back, the other member who was holding him back grabbed the front of his face, right? Like, (laughs) you know, I don't know if is that on purpose or not, but you know, this isn't just kind of like you grab someone's arms and kind of like, all right, I'm not going to let you move any further. Grabs his face. And that's kind of just jagged and weird and mm-hmm. kind of bizarre. Um, and I guess, what is it, it Kate, in, in the in the follow-up reporting, it wasn't just that um, it wasn't, at least my understanding is, it wasn't just that obviously Gates had, you know, thrown a wrench into the works one last time when they really thought they had it, but um, he thought that uh, Gates had secured a subcommittee chairmanship what is it? Armed services. Uh, basically, uh, oh God, I'm spacing on the guys. What, what's the what's the restrained guy's name again? Rogers. All right, Mike Rogers. Rogers. I think he's head of armed services. Um, I think I think I have that right. Um, and this would have been giving Gates a chairmanship of one of the subcommittees of armed services. But basically, the idea is that Gates had negotiated with McCarthy sort of cutting into his power. So it wasn't just kind of like you, you, you screwed us up again, uh, that he was kind of taking a bite out of the Rogers guy too. In any case, it got pretty out of control. I think we can yeah. state with some confidence. So after that, the 15th vote is when McCarthy was finally elected. And you 
kind of saw all the pieces falling into place. Nearly every defector, you know, except for one or two, voted present. So voted, you know, lowered the threshold to a place where he could win it. Um, this is around probably one thirty a.m. on Saturday. Any by Republicans this point? who voted against on the final vote? Yeah, I there were. They, there were okay. Uh huh. But just a couple. Um. So after that, you had uh, Hakeem Jeffries get up and like give his in my opinion, a bit too long speech. And then you had McCarthy give his, which he actually opened with a joke that I legitimately found funny. He said to Jeffries, he was like, you know, be careful. Two years ago, you know, I had 100% support from my caucus too, which is kind of like, I don't know, has some pathos, I guess. After seeing this man's just mortification play out, you know, on the big screen. But so now we have a a Speaker McCarthy and some of the unresolved pieces, because now we're recording this on Wednesday. Republicans have also voted for the rules package um, to to govern this Congress. And the mysterious thing here is, you know, what's known as the three-page addendum, which is this document, which now some people are saying doesn't exist at all, but which apparently consisted of the biggest concessions that McCarthy had to make to, you know, the Gateses and the the Boberts and the other part of this hardliner defector group, uh, defector group to make them support his candidacy. And that is reportedly where the, the big juice is, right? The rules package was like not that controversial. It was kind of just like opening up Congress to the people again and stuff like that. But the rules package is where we think... The debt ceiling stuff is, you know, the, the, the three page thing you mean. Right, right, right. The addendum right, right, is right. where perhaps the debt ceiling stuff is perhaps uh, the the jostling of committees, the, the power sharing agreement, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but so Punchbowl is the one who first reported the existence of this three page addendum. The weird thing is, not only have reporters not seen it, which like, OK, apparently uh, they're being holding it close to the vest, don't want it to leak. But basically, no House Republicans seem to have seen it either. And the thing that's a bit weird to me is like, okay, if you're a Matt Gates and you kind of emerged from this as a winner, maybe you don't have a huge interest in seeing it go public. I don't know, even though he likes everything he does to be public. But if you're not one of those House Republicans, like, aren't you kind of interested in what was given away to secure their report? And there's been grumblings here and there. You know, Nancy Mace from South Carolina was making some noise about voting against the rules package until she saw the three page addendum, which she ended up not doing. She voted for it anyway. But, you know, the rules package, which would have been a a big point of leverage for those House Republicans who wanted to see it, that passed pretty drama free. They didn't use that. So they're they seem to have like a quite lack of curiosity about what's going on over there. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, they uh, in many ways, the, um, you know, last week was a pretty traumatic event for House Republicans, right? It was, it was a, it was embarrassing. Um, There's no question it has really damaged Republican standing. You can see it in polls and stuff like that. It's really made them very unpopular. Obviously, it's two years till another election. So it doesn't really matter, right? Um, But still, they don't want to go back to that. Um, And I think they have a sense of they basically know what's there, um, but they don't know exactly. And what is 
you know, most telling is it must be pretty bad if 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 they won't even show it to their own members, let alone, um, you know, re- uh, uh, disclose publicly. And w- one thing that came up in it's it's very uh, it, it it's it's very murky. But one thing that came up in the sort of the back and forth yesterday is that some people say there actually is no three page document that it's just a verbal understanding and others say there is a three page document but you know that that stuff the three pager has the kind of semi bad stuff but there's other even worse stuff and obviously I'm saying worse from a certain perspective uh the sane person's perspective let's say um that that's not even committed to paper there and j- just for context here uh, for listeners um the rules package stuff is there's a certain amount of the rules package stuff that is on its face not necessarily even a bad thing. Um, there's there's a basic change that happened in the governance of the House of Representatives going back about 30 years. Basically starts under Gingrich, but when Democrats come into power, they largely adopt this as well. Um, it's it's variously called uh, martial law, um, suspending regular order. You know, the old system is things get worked out. You know, you've got a big budget document. The committees sort of work through things, come up with their, you know, it's a whole process. And then there are amendments and stuff like that. Okay. Um, starting again, 30 30 or so years ago, you have a much more top-down approach that the leadership basically runs the house. Here's what it's going to be, you know, here's here's what we're going to do. Um, here's the bill and you vote for it. And, and that's kind of it. And um, there are, and, and that's one of the reasons you increasingly have all of these sort of omnibus bills where kind of you don't go through the normal, um, you know, the normal, what used to be the normal budgeting process. One of the things that I think they got, and again, in the abstract is not at all a bad thing, is that when you introduce a bill, when you introduce that big mega omnibus bill, you can't have a vote for 72 hours. So everybody get a, gets a chance to look at it and kind of, you know, raise concerns and stuff like that. That's not an unreasonable thing. Right, that is not that is not some cr- uh, crazy wingnut idea. Uh, that is a more uh, you know normal, functional, led parliamentary uh, process. The counter to that is that the reason a lot of that stuff happens now is that antics, largely on the right, have made the house kind of ungovernable. But regardless, the point is the stuff in the rules package isn't the main stuff. The big stuff is agreements about pushing for a debt default, agreements about stacking certain key committees with members of the Freedom Caucus. And one of those is the rules committee. People don't talk much about the rules, you know, or off Capitol Hill, people don't talk a lot about the rules committee. But the rules committee is where well, <laughs> where the rules get devised, you know, we're kind of like, all right, how are we going to hold this vote? How many amendments did, are there allowed to be? 
uh, if we vote on X, are we going to allow a vote on an alternative to it? You know, Republicans have their bill. Are we going to let the Democrats also vote on their version of it? I mean, there's fewer Democrats, so kind of it's not, not um, uh, you, you know, it's not really giving up too much. That's the stuff where those are the agreements in which McCarthy has basically given to the Freedom Caucus people the rights to run the show. Um, And they are not, as Kate says, they are not revealing even to their own members quite what he agreed to. And, And a lot of those things aren't even supposed to be up to them. I mean, obviously, a powerful speaker gets what they want, but in the Republican caucus, sort of who gets to be chairman of this committee and that committee and who gets to sit on this committee, that stuff's voted on by the caucus. So, uh, you know, they're, they're realizing that, again, he has, in order to become speaker, he has basically signed over control of the House to these, you know, 30 or so hardcore members. And that's where we are. And now we've gotten into the first legislation being introduced of the new term. Um, The White House issued its first veto threat, uh, even though the bill it's about, which you, Josh, alluded to in the intro, the, uh, the IRS rescinding the funding that it got from the Infrastructure Act. Um, That will never pass the Senate, so there's really no risk of it getting to Biden's desk. But it is premised on this conspiracy theory that they just, like, it really is kind of astonishing how many Republicans buy into it and not just the usual suspects, but even ones that in a prior time would have been considered, you know, normal Republicans, maybe even respected Republicans, you know, like Chuck Grassley, people like that um, have just parroted this, that the 87,000 new armed IRS agents thing, which, you know, just the quick debunking of it is that figure comes from a, a report that predates the act that allotted the money Um They are trying to staff up, but these people are not all going to be armed IRS agents. There are only 2000 of those in the whole uh, institution and they don't. And they're already not even just they're not even all agents. Right. They're not even all the investigators. It's also kind of like people who work the call service and stuff. Yeah, Yeah. 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 And as it is, the armed agent contingent, you know, is not kicking down the doors of middle America to like get you to file your your W-2s. They're there for when tax crimes overlap with other crimes, like, you know, human trafficking kind of thing. Um, So that's not what it's about. Like you say, the battle against the IRS for the Republicans is a, at this point, decades long thing and clearly benefits them politically. Um, But so that's kind of what they came out of the gate with. The White House, you know, railed against it, said we will veto it. You know, this is empowering tax cheats at the at the expense of normal Americans. And then the other thing that Republicans are coming out with from the beginning is this trio of anti-abortion legislation. A lot of it, which is they've done before, or at least have had kind of anti-abortion panics about before. So there's one that would make the Hyde Amendment, which stops federal funding from being used for abortions, that it would make that permanent. As of now, it's a rider that annually gets attached to HHS funding. And uh, Democrats have recently kind of started about 
talking about stripping it out. Um, so there's that. We've got the the Born Alive Act, which is just totally, totally made up, but premised on this idea that uh, babies are born during botched abortions and that doctors then murder them on the surgery table. So it would make those doctors liable for criminal charges. Uh, you know, just the reality of the situation is when you are having an abortion late enough in a pregnancy that, you know, a, a baby could be born that could survive independently from the womb. Those are extremely rare, virtually always tied to tragic circumstances like fetal abnormalities or the woman's life being in risk. Um, and then the third one is just kind of a condemning attacks on anti-abortion uh, organizations and facilities, which also does the work of trying to erase the very long, rich history of violence from the anti-abortion movement to clinics and providers, um, which obviously there have been several murders, kidnappings, bombings, arsons. There's just a lot there. So anyway, that's kind of the trio they're going out with. And uh, Josh, as we were discussing pre-recording, none of those things is a national ban, right? Which is interesting because otherwise or even, you get, or even a restriction, right? Like restriction to 15 weeks or something like that, which is kind of interesting because in some ways this shows they're not moderating on abortion, right? They're, they're still kind of backing these extreme bills that in the same way that Republicans have for a long time, that they've kind of proposed these bills written with very emotional language oftentimes written to solve a problem that doesn't exist or that doesn't exist the way that they are saying that it exists. And that in real life, now we're seeing this stuff has co really deadly consequences for, for women. But we're back into this old, even though Dobbs totally turned abortion politics on its head, House Republicans are kind of back doing what they've always done, which is feeling comfortable and proposing all these bills that maybe could be damaging if they were ever passed into law, but they know they're not going to be passed into law. So it's almost like a time capsule of what it was like pre-Dobbs when Republicans could just churn out this anti-abortion legislation, knowing it, it wouldn't matter. You don't really have to think through the downstream effects. You can just put your name on the bill and be like, you know, I'm a, a pro-life warrior. I just leave it at that. Yeah, it's it's telling on a few different levels that they have, you know, there's no constitutional restriction now that says they couldn't pass uh, a bill in the House. That's not a law, obviously, for the reasons we've discussed. But they could just say, hey, we're passing, we're, we are banning abortion nationwide. Um, they could do what I take it uh, Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida, 15-week uh, ban. And they're not doing that. And that is uh, telling at a few levels. Um Despite not moderating on various fronts, I think they see that that's really kryptonite for them at the moment. And I suspect that within the internal conversations on this, uh, a lot of them are saying, look, we don't have the Senate. Joe Biden's president. So what is the logic of giving Democrats, giving abortion rights supporters this huge cudgel to delegitimize us when it is never going to become law? Like maybe this is something we do in 2025. Um, I suspect it will be something they do in 2025, but there's, there's, um, but there's no logic to it now. I mean, obviously they do a lot of things. There's not a lot of logic to, but it is 
revealing that they are making some level of, you know, kind of calculated calculated decision to, uh, you know, hold up a bit here. And I suspect these things that they are passing are basically to keep the pro-life, anti-abortion zealots on side. Because, you know, if you're them, you're thinking, wait a second, we've been, we've been working for this for this Dobbs decision for 50 years, you're in control. Where's our ban? You know, what the hell? Um, so you, you dish off these, you know, kind of partial birth and, and, uh, deep state against, uh, pro-life activists kind of things to, to, you know, to, to make them feel like they're getting, you know, getting some love for lack of a better word, even though they're not really going for it. So the other thing we wanted to talk about in uh, this fresh and new term of Congress is the ever intriguing George Santos, uh, who has spent his first few days being chased around by flocks of reporters while he gets lost in the labyrinth that is the Capitol. Um, Today, just kind of minutes before we started recording, the Nassau County GOP called for his resignation. Um, we've got a former congressman in the mix calling for his resignation. So far, Republican leadership has just bobbed and weaved, just kind of avoided talking about it. Now, the thing we've seen today, is that like formally the Nassau County GOP? And for for people who aren't for the New York area, uh, Nassau County is, you know, you've got New York City and then you've got Long Island to the immediate east where New York's, there are two counties on on Long Island. There's Nassau and Suffolk. Nassau is the western one, the one closer into the city. So it is, th- that's the county that borders New York City and most of Santos's uh, district is in Nassau County. Is it like formally Nassau County, the, the Na- not just like all the big wigs in the, in the Nassau County GOT, but formally the county party is saying you should resign. Um, press conference at the leadership party officials led by the chairman. So sounds, sounds like official. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess what is it? They have, they have, is it one of the new or is a former? They, they've basically kind of lined up everybody. Um, and it is interesting that um, it's it's an interesting dynamic because, as you said, uh, the House leadership is not – they are in no rush here for obvious reasons. They've got a four-vote majority. Um, it's not – it's certainly not certain that Democrats would win a special election, but – it's generally a democratic seat. So you have to assume that that is a, a, a decent possibility. And I, I would imagine it's a, you know, it, it's a tough environment at the moment for, for another Republican. You know, give us another bite at the apple. I don't lie as much as George did. Um, but it's interesting that the locals, they want him out. They really want him out. Um, and that is... Uh, you know, from one perspective, you can say, well, Josh, he's a pathological liar. You know, of course they want him out. But that doesn't seem to be swaying uh, Steve Scalise and Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> right. So. Looks like we also, while we've been recording, have our first sitting House GOP member to call on him to, re- to resign. And who's that? Anthony D'Esposito from New York's 4th District. 
Now is he he's another one of those freshmen, right? I think, I think that's so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Well, you know, the, the, they I mean, this is um these New York members are going to be a big deal mm-hmm. over the next 2 years. Um uh, some of them you have uh, you you have the woman who who was reelected to the basically the Staten Island district. Um, is it Maliotakis? I believe uh, her name is. You know she, she what is it? She had I think she served before. I she's in her second term. You have, I believe, four freshmen, among whom uh, George Santos is one. All of those are kind of, I don't know, say dead men walking, but they're all in a pretty tough spot going into 2024. Um, Some of them are in districts that are legit swing districts, even vaguely Republican districts. Others are just sitting in Democratic districts. People didn't really think they had much chance of winning. It's easy. It's uh, it's obviously much easier to win in a in a midterm when there's less turnout. Um, these are basically most or all these people are in Biden districts. So those are the people who, um, you know, when you talk about maybe some group of Republicans saying, "Look, we're not going to go along with this debt default thing," you've got to figure. It's those New York Republicans that are at the top of the list of of you know people in that category. You've got um, you've got the guy, I believe his name is Lawler, in New York Seventeenth District, which is um, just north. It, it's basically Westchester and Putnam and part of maybe Rockland. I can't, can't remember exactly. Just outside the city, you know, kind of like an hour outside the city. Um, he beat the uh, head of the DCCC which is a pretty good, you know, kind of hat trick. Um, and, uh, you know, so is, does, does, does that person want to go into, you know, next year's election saying, yeah, I, I, I could have prevented the debt default, but I, I needed to stay true to Kevin McCarthy. So all of the, you know, these, these New York types, you've got a few uh, in, in sort of similar Similar situations out in California, maybe one or two in Florida, um, but that's that's kind of where the action is going to be. Yep. Going forward. So now we're going to do a few questions. Um, the first is from Greg, who says, "Now that the House speakership fight is over, I'm wondering how House moderates, a group that apparently calls itself the Governing Caucus, had no sway in the negotiating and the votes." Um. <laughs> good question. Um, I think they, to the extent they had a sway, they probably had some sway basically saying, don't come back to us with Steve Scalise or don't come back to us with some rando who's just going to kind of follow, uh, the, the Freedom Caucus, um, uh, you know, uh, follow the Freedom Caucus line. We, it's, it's, it's McCarthy or no one. Now, we know that McCarthy is sort of as down with the Freedom Caucus as anybody because that's his whole plan. Um, but I do think that is, um, they probably did exercise some control there because, you know, as much as, as much as McCarthy, uh, couldn't afford to lose, you know, four or five members to his right, whoever else was going to replace McCarthy or McCarthy himself couldn't couldn't 
lose people on the you know on the other side. Um, the, the other thing, the other thing to remember with you know sort of notional Republican moderates, and even even giving them that label is you know questionable at 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 some level. Even uh, you know take this Lawler guy. Um, who is the one I just mentioned, the one who's in the 17th district. It's, you know, an hour outside of, hour outside of New York City, kind of, uh, kind of quintessential what now counts as, as, as a Republican moderate. Even if you're a Republican moderate, you still have 30% of the Republicans in your district who are down the line Freedom Caucus Trumpers, basically. So, if you're the guy who, you know, upset the apple cart of all the sort of the Freedom Caucus wish lists, you've you've got a problem in your district. Even if it's a pro-Biden district, you know, even if Biden won it 55-45, um, because you can be primaried. And, you know, so um, I don't know if it's the answer to the question, but that's kind of, that's kind of why, you know, what... What juice do these people really have, and what, um, how much can they really uh, defy these extremists? Since, to a great extent, extent they rely on those extremists to get them reelected. Not exclusively the extremists, but enough of them. It's really interesting because this batch of New York Republicans are in a pickle that is just becoming increasingly rare in our house landscape because now we've had so many cumulative years of gerrymandering that there are hardly any competitive house races anymore. You know, basically this cycle in particular states that it already gerrymandered to hell, particularly Republican ones, uh, just try to shore up their seats, make them even less competitive. And in New York, with the whole debacle we've outlined on the show before, when the the Democrats attempt to do an aggressive gerrymander got tossed out. The result of that is genuinely competitive districts. And so now these House Republicans are trying to tread a line that most of their peers don't have to do anymore. For their peers, it's just about surviving the Republican primary, which obviously encourages this kind of march towards authoritarianism and, and towards the hard right. But these people actually have to do that old dance of surviving a primary, but not making themselves so Trumpy and toxic in the process that they can be a Democrat in the general. So you know, what once was a uh, much more of a widespread uh, problem equation to solve here is now just for the select few. And I do think another interesting dynamic here is that all these people are freshmen, you know, so they are in this weird position where they have leverage and are in this unique political situation, but also have been at the on the hill for like two days. So it's an interesting, uh, you know, leverage dance to do here. Yeah, and the other thing, remember, is there are eighteen. There, uh, my understanding is there are eighteen Republican members who are in Biden districts, districts that Biden won. Now, obviously, Biden winning covers a lot of territory, right? If Biden won fifty nine forty, uh, fifty one forty nine, that's that's very different from like you know forty to sixty or something like that. Um, but still, that means if you are any and 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 let's remember too, Biden was running against Trump. Um, but having said all that, that means that you have to face a real election, a real general election, a, a general, a, a district um, in which 
Biden won means there are enough Democrats to to defeat a uh, a House Republican. So yeah, it's it's that is really going to be where the action is. And I think the 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 basic overriding question is, uh, you know, let, let's take that twenty. Let's take that as a kind of a cardinal number, the 20 holdouts. Well, you've got 18 on the other side, as I said, that are, that are in Biden districts. From the outside, you might say, well, you know, two can play this game, right? Um, but in practice, we have seen that the moderates don't play like the, like the Freedom Caucus types do. Um, even though they can, numerically they can, it's just not how they roll. So a lot of the question is going to come down to how do they roll? You know, are they going to, I have a post, I'm lose track of this sometimes, I think I haven't published it yet that I'm working on about something called a discharge petition. Now, this is a, for people who don't, you know, spend time on Capitol Hill, a relatively uh, obscure parliamentary tool. It basically goes like this. Any member of the House can draw up a petition that says, I want this bill to come to the floor. I don't care what the speaker says. I want to vote on this bill. If that person, if that member can get a majority of members of the House to sign that, that bill will come to a vote. Now, normally, I don't know, this happens maybe once a Congress. It's pretty rare. And the reason is that it's one thing to, you know, vote in a way that your party, you know, kind of against what your party wants. But to defy your speaker in that way, that's like, you know, you don't do that. That's something you kind of can't come back from necessarily. That is a um, that's a, a big breach. Although you know, in, in 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 a lot of ways, that's that's what just happened in this whole speaker thing. The Republican caucus voted. They voted for Kevin McCarthy. He won overwhelmingly. The way that's supposed to work is the people who opposed him say, "Okay, you know, I I didn't support him, but we all agreed, so now we're all going to vote for him." So they've already kind of broke that. You know, they broke that taboo, um, but. Right now, and, and the other thing is, usually you've got you know a majority of ten or twenty, thirty, forty. You know, got a lot of votes. Now you've only got four. It's pretty hard to get you know twenty five members of the speaker's party to defy him or her that way. But here, you only need four, or I guess you need five, um, depending on what happens with Santos and stuff like that. Um, and so that's going to be a big deal. Are they willing to do that? Are they willing to say, hey, I, I'm not down for this, this debt ceiling thing, or I'm not down for this government shutdown, or I'm not down for this. So they've got a lot of power. And you have, again, a lot of these members in New York State that, you know, they kind of got in on a fluke in 2022, a lot harder during a, during a presidential election. So They've got the power. Do they wield it? History tells us the moderates are squishes, not just ideologically, but characterologically, right? They just don't roll that way, but we'll see. That's really the kind of question that hangs over this whole Congress. And then we have a question from Ben who says, now that it's clear we're headed towards a debt ceiling hostage crisis, do the Democrats have a messaging plan? He says Republicans will make absurd demands, the Democrats will refuse them, and then Republicans will say, you know, they're willing to negotiate and Democrats are the one being intransi intransigent. 
as you've noted, the Washington media is wired for the GOP. So they'll echo this message too. What is Democrats next move to make sure the public is clear about who owns this? And this is a really good question because it absolutely captures the dynamics of the way this has gone, that Republicans are able to hold the debt ceiling hostage while claiming that they're being fiscally responsible. The Beltway kind of places just echo that uncritically. And then it somehow does shift the onus to Democrats, the ones who are trying to be responsible with the debt ceiling, to be the ones who like play ball. But I think the other thing is, after the fact things do tend to get clearer. I think it like the the Tea Party Republicans who kind of started this back in 2011, they did end up taking the brunt of the responsibility for doing this. And that has kind of been the trend, even though I do agree that a lot of the coverage in the moment is, you know, it, it puts the onus on the Democrats to resolve the problem. But we have seen that Republicans do end up eating the responsibility for this or at least they have in the past. Yeah, I, I think there's been, you know, there, there's we've had a kind of a little mini crisis since 2011, nothing really like that. Um, but I think the idea, the, the idea of debt ceiling hostage taking has kind of seeped in to mm-hmm. conventional campaign coverage of this yeah. is this is what that is. And, and, you know, the other thing, and this was a kind of a cardinal mistake, uh, mistake that Barack Obama made, which I think he later realized and, and was open about was you, you don't negotiate. There's nothing to negotiate here. We're not negotiating over. And, you know, one of the one of the many ironies here is what we're really talking about here is whether we will pay the bill for what we already bought under President Trump and under a Republican Congress. So I, I think, you know, that that's part of it of kind of like you pay your bills. If you know, Let's say you grant the Republican argument about, oh, you ran up your credit card bill. When you run up your credit card bill, maybe you'd be more responsible going forward, but you still have to pay your credit card off. That's just not how it works. And everybody understands that in this country, unless they, you know, end up going bankrupt or something like that, um, or, you know, with a dead credit rating. So, but I, but I think the, the other part of it is what we just discussed. They need to be laying the groundwork about the 18. You guys can solve this. Are you going to solve it? You know, um, and they really need to be focusing it on them because they are the ones who have the power to get the country out of this. And they need to be, you know, it's sort of it's sort of a um, it's sort of a balance because you want to be hammering these people, but you also want them to do the right thing. Right. So I really think the, the message is is mostly focused on those people. These are the, you know, for the people in those New York districts, hey, your congressman can solve this. Let them know what you think, mm-hmm. right? Um, you got to place the pressure there. So I think that's, um, in addition to being clear, like we're not going to negotiate, uh, negotiate with hostage takers, that's really the key to sort of um, to be laying the groundwork with those 18. And I think we do have some inclinations that Democrats are thinking that way as well. We had a Biden speech, you know, maybe a few months ago at this point, where the first time that the kind of plan to take Medicare and Social Security hostage really emerged from the Republican Party, where he said, you know, under no circumstances, am I going to allow them to cut these programs? You know, like, I I will not yield kind of staking out that position. And I think that's the one that Democrats want to take, which is a position of principle, a position of protecting people's rights and not 
folding to this just kind of destructive clown show from the people who have already established themselves as the ones who are kind of running the circus in the Republican Party. Right, right, right. Okay. All right. I think we've covered it. Well, uh, uh, two episodes down of quality content for 2023 <laughs> so far. Right. Thank you as always, Kate. And thank you to our producer, Jackie. Uh, and I think that's it for this week. Oh, oh, wait, before, it's not quite it, because I have to remind you that uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, the most amazing iced coffee in the world. You can get 25% off your order if you use the promo code TPM at uh, their website, which is Grady'sColdBrew.com. And that's it for this week. All right, we'll see you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.